The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome Diana Robinson. She is the campaign and education coordinator of the Food Chain Alliance. Previously, she worked at the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 1500, which represents over 23,000 grocery store workers just in New York. At Local 1500, Diana played dual roles as a worker organizer and the food policy coordinator of the Building Blocks Project for Good Food, Good Jobs, and Good Health. She was a leader of the union's 2011 campaign to organize target workers in Long Island. Diana graduated from Queens College with a bachelor's degree in political science. She is also a member of the Brooklyn Food Coalition Governing Board. So joining me all the way from New York is Diana Robinson. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Melinda, for having me. First, we should start by just letting our listeners know what is the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Sure. So the Food Chain Workers Alliance is a national coalition of worker centers, unions, um, and food justice groups advocating for workers along the food chain. So what that means is it's advocating for workers who pick and grow your food all the way to the restaurant workers who serve you when you go out to eat. And, you know, I watched a small video, I think it's less than 10 minutes, on your website, and I learned some information about food workers, and I was very surprised. For example, you said that one-sixth of the workforce works in this food chain network. That seems like a lot of people. Yeah, so there are 20 million food workers in the U.S., and there's millions more around the world, um, and they compose one-sixth of the nation's entire workforce, just like you said. Just collectively, these industries, which include production, distribution, processing, and retail, sell over $1.8 trillion in goods and services annually, making up 13% of the gross domestic product of the United States. So it's huge. It's such a big sector, and it's just growing. And they are largely unseen, aren't they? That is very true. A lot of times we think that these workers are invisible. A lot of times people don't think about the farm worker who's picking their apple or even the poultry processing worker who's slaughtering their chickens. People don't think about these workers who are such an essential part of bringing food to their tables. And if anybody wants to get a really good review of who these people are that enable us to eat so well every day, I really like your report called The Hands That Feed Us. And I just printed off some of the summary information. And I think what really struck me was that, or I guess it's the irony really, is that the people who work in this food system network are oftentimes hungry themselves. How can that be? Yeah, that's very true. Um, so what we did was to release that report, we surveyed workers along the food chain. We trained workers to survey their coworkers, and we surveyed over 600 workers and found that workers in the U.S. who work in the food system, earn, 86% of those workers surveyed earn low or poverty wages. A lot of them do not have access to things such as paid sick days. A lot of them work while sick because they're unable to take a day off unpaid. 
and in addition to that, like you were saying, a lot of them are hungry. A lot of these workers are the same people who live in underserved neighborhoods where they don't have access to healthier foods and are having to buy foods from corner stores that sometimes are rotting, not good quality, and very expensive. Hmm. Um, in addition to that, they also suffer from these diet-related diseases because of the access issue again. So it's this vicious cycle where you find workers working low-wage jobs, living in underserved neighborhoods, and then suffering the consequences in terms of their health. And we also found that a lot of these workers are on public assistance and that they're on, on public assistance at a higher rate than other workers in other industries. And I just want to make sure our listeners heard this correctly. More than 86% of workers who are working to feed us reported earning sub-minimum poverty and low wages. Only 13.5% of the people surveyed earn livable wages. In other words, able to afford rent, perhaps going to the doctor when they need it, as well as putting healthy food on the table. So I find this statistic to be remarkable and one, again, that we don't we don't see these workers. They're behind the doors. They're behind the scenes. They're the ones working like dogs in the field, harvesting our, our food. And they're the ones that work in the kitchen to prepare that beautiful food that comes to our tables. That is correct. And a lot of times these workers also suffer from very unsafe workplaces. Just recently in 2011, in he- here in New York City at a um, tortilla processing plant, a worker was crushed to death because a simple guard that was required to be in the mixing machine was not there, and the worker was snagged and pulled into the machine and crushed to death. This is happening here in the U.S., workers dying at the workplace. Oh, my. And we just saw a couple of months ago where that explosion happened at that um, in western Texas where they had that fertilizer plant where the explosion happened, and that plant hadn't had an ocean investigation since 1985. Um, so these are common practices where employers sometimes do not take into account the safety of their workers, and a lot of times workers pay with their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned OSHA, and I'm so glad you did because I was very interested to know about the worker who had been crushed. What are the laws regarding making sure workplaces are safe, and how often do these workplaces need to be inspected? Well, the workplaces, it varies state to state when the inspections happen. And a lot of times there has to be a complaint made for OSHA to go investigate because they're underfunded. But there are certain regulations that are required. So this safety guard was a requirement that it had to be in place. But the only time that OSHA then was able to go in and actually do an investigation and the boss was prosecuted and is also going to serve jail time and had to pay money back to the family was because someone died, and this is a problem that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very cumbersome on the employee to have to reach out to the department. It can't be on the phone. It has to be in writing, and they have to give their name. And a lot of times that's very scary for workers. They're scared to give their name because they're scared of losing their jobs. Well, and literacy issues, too, when there are language barriers and maybe not everyone can read and write, it becomes almost impossible to fill out those forms. Correct. Now, we should let our listeners know what OSHA stands for. That's Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Administration, yes. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, All these um, acronyms sometimes. I, I know, I know. Well, it's important, I think, for people to understand where the agencies are. You know, where do we go to either report or learn more about the safety requirements that should be in place but may be missing? So that's why I wanted to clarify that. 
Okay, something else from the report, or perhaps it was from the website in general that, that stuck out to me, and that had to do with, of course, workers not having adequate sick time. And there was a woman who testified who did not was not given bathroom breaks. This is something that, for those of us who have the luxury of being able to get up from their desk and go use the bathroom whenever they want to, it seems inhumane to deny someone the human and physical right to go use a restroom. How common is that? It's very common, actually. We find it in restaurants, in warehouses, poultry processing plants and farms. This happens. It's, it's a common problem for workers being unable to go to the bathroom. For example, in um, processing poultry plants, there's OSHA rulings requiring the boss to give workers the ability to go to the bathroom. But a lot of times, there's no one to cover them on the line, and they have to wait for a long time. They're surveilled going and coming from the bathroom. They're timed. So a lot of times, people wear adult diapers so they just can go to the bathroom while they're on the line. This is not only, like, a health issue for the worker, but it's also a food safety issue. Like, to think that the same place where our chickens are being slaughtered, someone has to go to the bathroom on themselves. It's also a matter of human dignity. Exactly. And I think of all the reasons listed, I mean, certainly um, that's not the ideal situation from a public health standpoint, but I don't know which is worse the public health perspective or the human dignity perspective. And I wonder how on earth OSHA could turn a blind eye to this situation. Yeah, again, it's so difficult because they're underfunded. There aren't enough inspectors to go around, and it's very difficult. And whenever OSHA does go into a workplace, they give the company or the plant, they give them notice that they will be coming. So they make everything perfect. So then they don't find any violations. So that's very common. And something else that when I was talking to a worker, a former warehouse worker from a Walmart warehouse, whenever she went to the bathroom, she was the only female worker in the warehouse. So she suffered from a lot of sexual harassment and just harassment in general for being a woman. And her boss would sit out, a male boss, he would sit outside the bathroom while she was in the bathroom waiting for her to come out, she eventually stopped going to the bathroom and suffered a really bad bladder infection. Mm. Oh, that's so, so inhumane. These are things that are happening every day in different workplaces, and you know they really need to be addressed, and I'm, I'm very happy to be on the show being able to educate people about what's happening. Absolutely. Well, the other issue that I wanted to bring up with regard to what's going on behind the scenes is if we don't give workers within our food system the right to take time off when they're sick, there's going to be a backlash because they will in turn make others sick, including the people who are eating the food. And there was a case that you reported about an individual who had hepatitis A and how many thousands of consumers of that food had to be tested as a result, simple result of this worker not being allowed to take time off to go to the doctor and receive treatment for an extremely contagious virus. Yeah, so 3,000 people had to be tested for hepatitis A as a result of that, and this took place at an Olive Garden in Fayetteville, North Carolina, um, where the employee, she didn't have paid sick days, she was unable to take a paid sick day and was forced to come into work, and that was the result. 3,000 people had to be tested. She then joined the class action lawsuit against Olive Garden, and she they won their lawsuit against Olive Garden. Do those employees have sick days now? No, they won a settlement, but no. Most employees add, because um, Olive Garden is part of a larger corporation, which is Darden. It's one of the largest restaurant groups in the world. 
own over 1,900 restaurants just in the U.S., and that includes Olive Garden, Red Lobster, Capital Grill, Longhorn Steakhouse, and I could go on and on. But those companies, most of them do not provide paid sick days, and they were one of the leaders in opposing the Affordable Health Care Act, where, I don't know if you saw, but there was a whole bunch of food companies complaining and saying that they would reduce workers' hours so they wouldn't have to pay into the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, and they were one of the leaders who were opposing that and had said that they would do that as well. Yeah. What is it going to take? So we as consumers who find this to be absolutely unforgivable, not only, again, from a, a compassionate, let's treat each other with dignity perspective, but also when if we want to look at public health and food safety, you know, we hear about all of these food safety outbreaks when people go to a restaurant and then so many people get sick and then we wonder, well, how did that happen? And something as simple as providing a worker with a paid sick day would be, it seems like a little bit of prevention would solve a lot of illness down the road. But as we as consumers then, what can we do other than saying, okay, I'm going to find out how many restaurants Darden owns and I'm going to personally boycott those restaurants? Is that well, actually, action? Yeah. Actually, one of the things that we, one of our member organizations, uh, the Restaurant Opportunity Center, um, they organize restaurant workers around the country, and one of the things that they advocate for is not boycotting um, going to these restaurants, but actually, you know, letting management know that this is something that matters to you as a customer, that you enjoy eating at their restaurants, and that it, it would really matter to you if they provided their workers for paid sick days. Um, they have a diner's guide, which you can get online, or there's also an app called Rock's Diner's Guide, and you can um, download that, and it can tell you what how restaurants are doing in terms of labor practices, paying above tip minimum wage, um, providing workers or paid sick days, and things like that. And you can see, and there's tip cards in the back of the guide that you can use when you go to speak to a manager and say, you know, I really enjoy your restaurant, but I would love it if you provided your workers or paid sick days. We also, um, you can email your senator. There's a legislation right now. Um, it's called the Healthy Families Act. And that's also a requirement for employers to provide their workers with paid sick days. Um, there's a lot of local movement around paid sick days. It's just passed here in New York. Um, in some other states, it has passed as well. So there's a lot of local things happening that people can get involved in as well. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Diana Robinson. She is the Campaign Education Coordinator of the Food Chain Workers Alliance, Previously, she worked at the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 1500, which represents over 23,000 grocery store workers in New York. Diana holds a degree from Queens College, a degree in political science, and she's also a member of the Brooklyn Food Coalition Governing Board. Well, Diana, you mentioned that there is a guide, and I just want you to repeat that. Again, what is the name and where can we get that? So it's Rock's National Diners Guide. You can go to rockunited.org. ROC. Yes, ROCunited.org. Okay. And you can go online um, and download it there. And there's also an app that you can get in the Apple Store or if you have an Android um, in the Android Store. If you have a smartphone, you can download that app. And wherever you are in the vicinity that you are, it will tell you the different restaurants and has different ratings based on labor practices for the restaurants. And what does ROC stand for? Restaurant Opportunity Center. Okay. Well, we'll make sure to provide that link to our listeners, both to the Food Chain Workers Alliance as well as the rockunited.org site so that we can stay more informed and take action that has really an impact. So 
It's interesting that the strategy is not to boycott, but to educate, inform, and ask. Because yeah. we've seen that, you know, consumers hold great power. You know, we've seen this whole sustainable food movement, how it's taken off. And now you see most supermarkets carry organic products. Um, most restaurants carry organic products and local. So we see the power that consumers hold, and they can really move people, move corporations to make changes. Mm-hmm. So we think that's really important, too. Well, another report that you had sent to, we are both on a wonderful listserv called the Community Food Security Coalition Listserv, and that's where a lot of these discussions among thousands of people across the country take place, and anybody can join. But you had posted something in May, May 30th of 2013, and it was an article that came from the Committee on Education and the Workforce, and it was about how low wages at a single Walmart store cost taxpayers about $1 million every year. Okay, how does this work exactly? So we, you know, a lot of people have heard about Walmart and their bad labor practices, not only in the United States, but worldwide. You know, we just saw the buildings collapse in Bangladesh, as well as the factory fire where a lot of people died just because Walmart didn't sign on to a safety agreement that would prevent things like this from happening. Walmart is notoriously known for paying very low wages. You know, they also go into these communities and they destroy the rest of the businesses in the area. So they really bring down communities as well. And the average Walmart associate makes $15,000 a year. Mm. So an average of $8.81 an hour. A lot of their workers are part-time. A lot of the things that some of the workers some of you may have heard, but some of the Walmart workers were on strike last week. Um, they were, you know, protesting for better wages, more secure hours, and things like that, because a lot of them are part-time, then they are in public assistance programs, actually, because they qualify because they earn such low wages. Well, and I think that's really an important point for our listeners to understand, is that when we give people, through our public tax dollars, benefits or health benefits or food stamps, now called SNAP, what we're really doing is subsidizing employers because they are refusing to pay workers a living wage. And I don't know that we always look at those programs that way. But when we step back and ask ourselves, why does a person need food stamps or why does a person need public assistance? Well, it's because their employer isn't giving them a living wage or access to health care. And really, it's the, it's the public dollars that are subsidizing these big employers who continue to bring in the wealth, while those of us below those, those high earners keep on losing ground. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Um, just in the state of Massachusetts, Walmart Associates using publicly subsidized health care in 2009, it cost $8.8 million for the state of Massachusetts to subsidize those workers because Walmart was not providing them with health care. Mm. So it's, it's astounding, like these numbers, to learn a corporation that's making so much money, over $400 billion in profit, and they can't afford to pay their workers a better wage and also provide them with health insurance. It's just mind-boggling to me. And you'd think and the, you'd get a more loyal and healthy employee if you paid them fairly and treated them like human beings. Exactly. We found that many employers who pay their workers better and provide them with benefits, they have higher productivity, 
and the workers stay on for longer periods of time. Like we see in the retail industry, there's such high turnover. It is because these wages are low and people are not able to afford to live on these wages or people have multiple jobs. Mm-hmm. Are you doing any work or, do, or does the Alliance have any position on immigration reform? Oh, yes, we do. Um, we actually work, we're part of a alliance, the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance, um, and with them we put out some principles on immigration reform. Um, one of the things that we're very adamant about and that we really feel that immigration reform needs to have is protection for workers because a lot of times we see the targeting of undocumented workers um, for trying to organize in the workplace. Also with different programs, as the guest workers programs, a lot of guest workers are exploited. They're brought here to work for a certain employer, and when they come here, it's a very different situation. So we think there needs to be protections for, for workers, and it has to be a fair, just, and humane immigration reform that really... Mm-hmm. Tell me something. I'm curious. You're a relatively young woman, and because I saw you on the video uh, at your website, how did you get into this work and, and do so much good in such a short time? So for me, as a young child, it was always important to me to really stand up for people and for what was right. I was always that annoying little kid that that would be like, that's not right, Mom, don't say that. So for me, that was always something that was instilled in me, was part of my values. And then in college, I got involved with immigrant rights organizing, specifically with youth organizing around the DREAM Act. And then from there, I saw this really this connection that was so so strong between labor and immigrants, you know, because a lot of our labor force are immigrants, and especially in these low-wage jobs, immigrants and people of color. And I thought that that would be a great opportunity to do those two things together and to really make change. Mm-hmm. And I noticed you tried to establish or you worked with, with workers at the Target store on Long Island. What was that story? Well, I was working at the union, and workers from that Target store in Valley Stream reached out to us because they were very unhappy um, with a lot of retail, what's happening. Um, they're cutting workers' hours to part-time. They're also trying to top out workers where they will not pay more than a certain wage to workers. There's workers that have been there for over 10 years, but their wages hadn't gone up much, or they would stop them at a certain wage. So those workers there were very concerned, and they wanted to make change there, so we started a campaign there. Um, they had a union election there. They lost their election. Um, the vote was 85 to 137 or 132, I think. So they lost their election. But later on, an NLRB judge found that the election had been unfair because the employer target used a lot of intimidation and also lied to the workers. And their national policy handbook was found illegal because it had illegal language prohibiting workers from talking about organizing and things like that. So for us, I feel like that was a great victory because although the workers didn't unionize, they have the opportunity to have another election and Target has to change their policy book. Mm-hmm. You know, I noticed there's such a large anti-union sentiment and I don't understand where that comes from. I mean, all, all we're really looking for is for workers to be paid a, a fair wage, a living wage, and to have access to benefits that we'd all certainly consider to be health-supporting and life-supporting. Where do you think that sentiment comes from? I feel like it's been a lot of miseducation, and unfortunately a lot of younger people have not experienced what it, a union is, so they really don't know what a union is. They don't understand, so when they're put into a situation 
where this happens, where workers are trying to organize, they don't understand what the, what it is, and they trust the employer a lot more. And the thing is, the labor laws are very, very favorable to the employer and not the employee. So even if you have these union elections, a lot of times the employer has so much power to influence workers. They have these captive audience meetings where they'll sit everyone together in one room and they'll talk about why the union's not good, why the union's bad, and things like this. And it's just been ongoing. And the media hasn't helped, I think, either, right? We see a lot of things about the unions are bankrupting the country, the unions, the unions. Um, So I think it's been a culmination of all those things that have created this negative idea of what a union is, when in reality, you know, you hear a lot of people say, but this is true, right? The union brought us a 40-hour work week, the weekend, and all these benefits that now companies provide because they want to avoid unionization. Like most jobs, people get paid vacations and things like that because of the union that established that standard. Mm -hmm. Tell me something. We just have a few minutes left, so I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to bring out any points that you'd like our listeners to know about, either from your reports or campaigns. Yes. Um, So I talked about before about the minimum, um, about how workers in the food system earn such low wages. So one thing that we're asking um, consumers to do is to sign on to a petition um, to ask Congress to raise the minimum wage um, federally. Right now the minimum wage is $7.25. And the proposed legislation, which is a fair minimum wage act, would raise the minimum wage to $10.10 over the next three years. And what's really unique about this legislation is that it would also increase the tip minimum wage. Um, a lot of people don't know that uh, there's a tip minimum wage. For example, waitresses and bartenders who earn tips earn a lower wage, which federally is $2.13 and hasn't gone up since 1991. So over 20 years, um, waitresses and bartenders are making a lower wage than other workers. So I think that's something we'd like you to sign on to and support raising the minimum wage, which I think is something that everyone would be on board with. Yeah, well, certainly, um, I think it was Ford from the Ford Motor Company even recognized that he had to pay his workers enough to be able for them to buy the cars that they were manufacturing themselves. So clearly, if we want to have a healthy economy, we need to make sure that the population um, has the resources it needs to stay well and vital. I'm going to let everyone know, again, about the websites that you mentioned. So if you want to learn more, and certainly the report called The Hands That Feed Us is such a a chilling, really, revelation about what's going on out there. And that is simply foodchainworkers.org. And then if you'd like to know more about the Restaurant Opportunities Coalition United, that's rocunited.org. Anything else, Diana? Yeah, so to sign on to the petition, it's on signon.org. And the name of the petition is Tell Congress Don't Let Food Workers Go Hungry. Um, So Tell Congress Don't Let Food Workers Go Hungry. And you can find it on our website, too. Earlier this year, we released a report called A Dime a Day, because that's what it would cost a consumer, and this is a very rough uh, estimate. And actually, it's a higher estimate um, than we would expect it to be, but it would, to the consumer, it would only be $0.10 a day to raise the minimum wage to $10.10 and to raise the tip minimum wage to 70% of that it would cost consumers 10 cents a day. So that's like eight peanuts 
<laughs> yeah. Basically. Well, and I'd also like to add that $10.10 an hour is still not a living wage. It's not what we want, but it's a start. We it's feel. a start. It's certainly better than $7.25. Well, Diana, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. We've been speaking with Diana Robinson. She is the campaign and education coordinator for the Food Chain Alliance. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much, Diana, for working to protect human dignity in the food system. Thank you.